0: Well, thank you very much. Although the applause is uh, really quite out of place because I discovered today that I'm really very boring. I don't have sheep or pigs. Or I was sitting at a table today at dinner time with a bunch of people who have chickens and rabbits and alpaca, alpacas, something. Somebody had a llama or something was talking about llamas. I don't know. I don't even have an accent. <laughs> Um, oh. <laughs> anyway, we'll have our little cross to bear, don't we? <laughs> um, let's pray, and then I'd like to ask you to get your Bibles, and we'll read some portion of that together. Let's pray. Great of heart, they know no turning. Honor, gold, they laugh to scorn, quench desires within them, burning by no earthly passion, torn. Merciful Father, may that be true of us, as we've sung. May be the case that we're not torn by earthly passions, but that we make it our ambition to strive for that which is most precious and most significant, And as we see a picture of the life of Christ in the scriptures before us today, we pray that we, like him, would, in whichever way you call us, to be ready to lay down our lives in his service and the service of his people. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 3. We're going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll talk about this together. Nehemiah chapter 3. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated and consecrated it and set up its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel, and next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zachor the son of Imri built. The sons of Hasanar built the fish gate, they laid its beams and set up its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Meramoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Barna, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joida, the son of Parsia, and Meshulam, the son of Bosediah, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set up its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Meronthite, the men of Gibeon and of Mitzpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Hahiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramath, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Mashabniah, repaired. Malkijah, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the son of Pahath-Moab, repaired another section, and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halash-hesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zarnoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set up its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall, as far as the dung gate. Malkijah, the son of Rechab, repaired the district of Beth-Hakarem, repaired the dung gate. Sorry, ruler of the district of Beth-Hakarem, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set up its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalon, the son of Kol hose ruler of the district of Mispar, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set up its doors, its bolts and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden as far as the steps that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Beth-Zur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rahom, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Keilah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavai, the son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Kila. Next to him, Ezra, the son of Jeshua, a ruler of Mitzpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Barak, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakoz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Marsiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palau, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king uh, at the corner of the guard. After him, Padiah the son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Opposite the, above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshullam the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malkaijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate, and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. I want to talk a little bit about your future what you plan to do, what your aspirations are. I know that you are all currently doing different things and you have different aspirations for what you'd like to do in the future. Things like work and further study, professional development, family, marriage, and so on. I want to try and address the ambitions that you have and place them in a context biblically, that I hope will guide you on a a more appropriate Christian path than many young Christian men and women uh, seem inclined to take in our day. Um, There are two interwoven strands of our culture that make this necessary. The first is that we are living in an increasingly ruined civilization. We are the heirs of, uh, in the West and in America in particular, of a, a glorious political and social order, which is the fruit of Christian faithfulness for many generations. But that is crumbling as Christian faithfulness crumbles in the last few generations and increasingly in ours. And so you now live in a world where uh, you can't take for granted the Christian atmosphere that your grandparents could have done in the 50s, for example, and certainly not in the 19th century, um, and where you will face hostility and temptations to go along and be of the world as well as in it, to pick up the theme of this uh, week's talks. So as a first cultural feature. The second feature, of course, is precisely that. You're tempted to Go along with the crowd, and in particular, to embrace a very thinly baptised, but basically secular, cluster of ambitions. What are your ambitions? Think of the things I listed before, and there's nothing wrong with them, of course. Um, Career, further study, professional development, marriage family, and so on and so forth. There's absolutely nothing wrong. There's a lot right with them, but there is a, a central coordinating principle that is missing, and I want to reinstate it for you by urging you to sacrifice. I want to encourage you this evening to lay down your lives in whatever way it turns out to be necessary. And that's why I read Nehemiah chapter 3. You might have wondered what on earth I was doing, reading that long and at times seemingly somewhat tedious and apparently irrelevant list of who repaired what bit of what wall in Jerusalem in the 5th century BC. There are no irrelevant details in the Bible. I know you will have discovered this from your own pastors, but let me say to you again what I'm sure they show you every Sunday. Every single word, every twist and turn of even the most arcane-looking bits of the Bible um, is significant. And if nothing else tonight, I hope you'll realize that as we look here at Nehemiah chapter 3. Just a reminder of the setting. Just flick back in your Bibles to the previous page, and I'll I remind you of what we all know um, about the, the context, in the, the historical context of this book. We're in the 5th century BC, in about the year 446. And what's happened is that the Israelite exiles who were in Babylon have returned to their land of Israel in about 538 BC. So just under a century previously, the exiles returned with great fanfare and great excitement. The decree of Cyrus, the Persian, overturning the Babylonians' previous foreign policy and allowing the, the captured nations to go back to their own place and basically rebuild. And so they went back with great excitement. And Nehemiah remained... Well, Nehemiah wasn't born then, but Nehemiah was the, one of the descendants of some of the people who remained in the region of Babylon, now conquered by Persia. And he hears, 85, 90 years later or so, how things are going, and he's not excited about what he hears. Chapter 1, verse 1. Look with, him, look with me, and I'll show you. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Hisleph, in the 20th year. That's the uh, December 446 BC, probably. 20th year of the king. As I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who'd survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. How's it going? What's it like back in the land? Have you rebuilt? Is the culture of the people of God now thriving and flourishing and the worship of the living God taking place with joy and vigour and excitement? And are all the nations streaming to Mount Zion to hear of the law of the Lord and beat their swords into plowshares and not learn war anymore? And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. The city remains in ruins. And Nehemiah spends the rest of chapter 1 actually praying. Look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And he's a man of some social standing. End of chapter 1, he's cupbearer to the king, so some kind of court official. And then in chapter 2, he basically asks permission to go back to Jerusalem to assist or to perhaps galvanize the exiles who've returned there to rebuild. And so he goes back in chapter 2 he starts to inspect it and in chapter 3 they start to rebuild the wall. You see their situation is not anything like the same as ours but it has these resemblances to it doesn't it. They've got to find a way of building a future in a world where all of the things that previously they might have clung to and taken for granted have gone. They've got to rebuild their ruined civilization. What are their ambitions going to be? What are the men and women who find themselves there going to have to do in order to serve the Lord in this kind of situation? Chapter 3 begins the story of that rebuilding. And you know Jeremiah, is, no, Jeremiah Nehemiah is known as the man of action. He's the, the, uh, the great leader of the people of Israel who galvanized them, uh, sword in one hand, trowels and shovels in the other to rebuild while they fought off their enemies and refused to bow before the tyrant bullies, of the little tinpot tribal nations around them that still remained in the land of Canaan. You know Nehemiah is that man of action. It's very interesting, just parenthetically, before we jump into chapter three. Before he was a man of action, he was a man of prayer. Look at the dates. It happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, December 446 BC, chapter one, verse one. Chapter 2, verse 1, when does he actually go to the king? In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. That's probably March or April 445 BC. It's three or four months later. What has Nehemiah been doing in the meantime? He's been praying for three or four months before he goes up to the king. You see, you don't pray about the work. <laughs> Prayer is the work. Maybe we talk about that a little bit more with some more uh, exhortation from Pastor Booth um, later on. But what we find then in chapter 3 is this long description of what happened. So basically, Nehemiah gets all these guys together and they start at the sheep gate in chapter 3, verse 1. And he describes who does what all the way round the wall of Jerusalem. It's, you know, it's a few hundred yards long, this wall of the old city. And you get all the way back to the Sheep Gate at the end, chapter um, 3, verse 32. And you've got this long description. And as always, embedded in what looks superficially like just details, just a long list, embedded in here are profoundly significant lessons that these men and women learned about sacrifice, about what they needed to do, how they needed to lay down their lives for their country, for their city, for their people, for their Lord. This is a picture of Christ, actually, who knows a little bit about laying down his life for his brothers. It's a, it's a And as we see, we'll see actually three different ways in which they sacrifice. Do they sacrifice their vocations? Do they sacrifice their self-interest. Do they sacrifice their status. And in every case, they're giving us both a picture of Christ, who is to come, and they're giving us the opportunity to embrace a new, coordinating, central aspiration. Before you think, I want to join the military. Before you think, I want to be a mum. Before you think, I want to inherit great-granddad's farm and have how many gazillion chickens. Or Before you think about all those points of your ambition. Will you think, I want to lay down my life. I want to sacrifice. Will you be like these People, because it might just turn out that this is what's needed. They lay down their vocations. They lay down their self-interest and lay down their status first. They lay down their vocations. Just look at this chapter. Just you know, get your Bibles open. If you haven't got a Bible with you, uh, don't use a phone. Use the Bible of the person next to you. You can use a phone if you must, but that's it's a telephone. Yeah? It's not. It's not a, It's not a Bible. Get a Bible. <coughs> Made of paper. <laughs> what do you notice as you look through this chapter and you uh, all these the people who repaired this bit of the wall and that bit of the wall and the other bit of the wall? What do you notice? I tell you what I notice. I notice a distinct lack of builders. <laughs> chapter three, verse one. Eliashib the high priest rose up. With his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. Now I'll just stop right there for a second, like okay, we've got some building work he's doing, let's go get the pastor. (laughs) (laughs) No, really bad idea. Don't do that unless there's nobody else. Unless your high priest has got to put his books and his scrolls away and get his hands dirty and his knees sore for the first time in a long time to do what needs to be done rather than what he wants to do. There's a bunch of things they never teach you at seminary. They never teach you all the most important things at seminary. Uh, Some seminaries try and aspire to teach you, some of them, but I don't know a single seminary in the world that teaches you to build. Too bad, if that's what needs doing. But it's not just the high priest. Verse 8, look with me. Next to them, Uziel, the son of har Goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. You've got verse 17, uh, you've got Levites with Rehum, the son of Barney. Verse 22, you've got more priests. Verse 32, look right down at the bottom of the chapter. uh, Verse 31 and 32 goldsmiths and merchants. And what you don't find is the goldsmith saying, oh, I'm sorry, like, I'm a little bit too delicate for all this. You know, like, my calling, you know. <laughs> perfumers, I mean, I ask you, they kind of rock up at Jerusalem. It's like, well, uh, I'm going to go find some rose petals. <laughs> so, sorry, um, uh, we, we, we aren't going to need any perfumers for quite a while. Are you willing to lay down your vocation? Now, some of them would have done so temporarily. I mean, the priests and Levites went back to being priests and Levites, certainly by chapter 12, because they're doing a bunch of stuff in the worship context for the people. But whether temporarily or permanently, I don't know how long it was till they actually needed a professional perfumery in Jerusalem. But these were men and women who were willing to say, well, look, I had my plans, but plans change. As Mike Tyson says, everyone has a plan until he gets punched in the face. (laughs) And so what are you going to do? Are you going to change in the sense of being willing to take up your new calling? Because it's what the rest of the world needs. It's interesting, if you read um, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, all the kind of spiritual gifts section. Uh, chapter 12 uh, there are many gifts and they're all of equal dignity in the sight of God they all come from the same laws chapter 13 the, the way to utilise the gift is in love it's the love chapter love is patient, love is kind, yada yada the one they read at weddings which is really hilarious because actually it's a rebuke love is patient stupid impatient bunch of Corinthians love is kind what are you are we reading now at a wedding? in that tone of voice so, so all the gifts have equal dignity in the sight of God they're to be exercised in love. Then chapter 14 is a test case. What's to be preferred, prophecy or tongues? And the answer is prophecy, whatever prophecy is. And it's complicated what prophecy is in First Corinthians. But the reason is crucial. Because Paul says, look, if I say, if I, I'd rather say five words that you all can understand than 10,000 words in a tongue that you can't understand. What will help everybody else is what I'll do. This just suffuses the whole of the Bible. It's not a bad thing, obviously, for you to aspire to do something, and maybe many of you will get to do that. But are you willing to lay down your calling because other people might just need you to do something else? And isn't, isn't it an astonishing thing? The things that the Holy Spirit thinks it's worth recording. Parchment is expensive. Papyrus is expensive. And Nehemiah bothers to write... So that all the world would know that this goldsmith laid aside the dignity, the high earning capacity, the social standing of his profession, and picked up a trowel and a shovel and started hacking away at dirt with the rest of us. Let all the world know, for the whole of history, the names of these men and their families. Because they sacrificed. It's interesting how plans change sometimes. Um, I'm reminded of the story of um, Benjamin Warfield. I don't know if you've heard of B.B. Warfield. Yeah, you heard the story of B.B. Warfield's honeymoon. So his wife, Annie. The, the, the story is, is it's not really very well recorded, but best I can make it out, what happened is he married his wife, Annie, Either immediately before or immediately after he went to Germany to study under the great German biblical stutter, um, scholar Franz Dielich, I think it was. Um, but she was, one version of the story I've read um, recounts that she was struck by lightning shortly after they married on a railway platform and permanently disabled, whether paralysed or or maybe other versions of the story say lightning struck nearby but left her so emotionally shattered that she was a physical invalid for the whole of the rest of her life. And they married at quite a young age and Warfield died quite old and he spent the whole of the rest of his life never for more than two hours was he apart from his wife. He would go to lecture, he would write, but he would never be separated from Annie for more than two hours, isn't that astonishing? I, I know I, you know you guys are all single. and I hope that you find a, a wife or a husband, and and I, I'm sure that you have your dreams, right? Uh, how how you like um, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer? and all these the aspirations that I'm asking you to place within this framework of sacrifice are not bad aspirations like it's not a bad thing it's a really good thing to aspire to be able to have to have children but what if you can't have children it's not that uncommon it's what will you do Will you be so existentially torn apart because you had fixed all your hope on a good thing without placing it in the context of the sacrifice that actually sanctifies those good things and prevents them from becoming idols? Any good thing can become an idol if it becomes the god you worship. And once it becomes an idol, it will destroy you. It will destroy you. Don't let it do that. So if you hold these things lightly as gifts from the Lord, it also makes you more grateful for them, because you realize, you know, what do I have that I didn't receive? Um, And then especially in relation to the, the vocations for which we work, why then do you boast as though you did not? so much of what we have and are is a gift it's just it's an accident of providence it's your genes it's your parental nurture it's the school you're at it's that teacher who was willing to put up with all your stupid messy homework again and again and again and again and finally the penny drops and you started working and then you pulled your finger out and actually did pretty well at school and got to college and got a good job or whatever it was but it wasn't you the unadorned achiever was it it was a gift life and breath and everything else and and if we if we approach life in the way that Jesus did, with the commitment to lay it all down, then every day that we have whatever it is we have, we'll have it with gratitude and joy and thankfulness. Uh, just one anecdote from our life. we, we um, My wife Nicole and I, we married in 1999, and we were at that time... Uh, members of an evangelical church it was more reformed than anything else but it wasn't um, the kind of reformed uh, context in which it was obvious to us that every aspect of our lives ought to be brought under the lordship of christ That, that was a that was a discovery that we made in the first few years of our marriage and so one of the things that uh, Nicole didn't realize she was going to be doing when she graduated with a degree in chemical engineering from the University of Oxford was spending 20 years of her life educating our children. She was a very very good engineer when I started reading some books about Christian education and it didn't take me long to be persuaded you know actually probably we, we need to educate our kids Christianly because Everything comes under the rule of Christ. There's no square inch uh, of all creation about which Christ does not say, "Mine." Abraham Kuyper butchered the quote, but you know the quotation, right? And so it's easy for me to come to the conclusion: Hey, babe, we're going to have to do something. We can't send our kids to these government schools where you know some well-meaning Muslim or atheist is going to fill their head with Darwinianism, can we? So we're going to we'll have to we can't afford a Christian school, so we'll have to educate them at home. It was really easy for me to reach that conclusion, and for my wife, it was a. Uh, it was a, a change of direction that would have been absolutely shattering if she had not already previously embraced sacrifice as the overarching principle under which everything else is going to be subsumed. Are you with me? So of course you have your ambitions, but then well, things change. So your vocations. Second... Uh, These people, in Nehemiah chapter 3, sacrificed, laid down their self-interest. Now, this is fascinating. It's it's all about the details in the Bible. Uh, And and if if you look closely at the details, ask yourself, where exactly were these people repairing the wall? Look with me, I'll show you some examples. Verse 23, after them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah the son of Marseiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. And it makes sense, doesn't it? It's like, look, I built this place. It's like my house is right next to the wall. I know how it's constructed. I've got a kind of skin in the game. I'll, I'll rebuild this bit. Yeah, it kind of makes sense. Where would you go to start rebuilding but your own house? Makes sense. And a number of other people did the same. Uh, verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired each one opposite his own house. Verse 29. After them, Zadok the son of Imma, repaired opposite his own house. Verse twenty, uh, verse thirty, second half, verse twenty. Uh, sorry, verse thirty. Meshullam the son of Baruchai repaired opposite his chambers. See, they're all repairing the bit they know, the bit they own, the bit they've got a personal vested interest in. And there's no reproach cast upon them for that. That's fine. That's, but what it does is to cast into stark relief the people who did differently. Verse 1. Sorry, not verse 1. Verse 7. Next to them repaired Melatiah the Gibeonite, and Jaden, the Moronoth the yeah, grief. What'd I do with this chapter? <laughs> the seat of the uh, the men of Gibeon and of Mitzpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Now just think about that for a second. Um the men of Gibeon and the men of Mitzpah did not live in Jerusalem. Okay, those towns are six, seven miles away. They did not repair outside their own house. Their houses are fine. They're down in Gibeon and Mitzpah. They're doing all right. They came up to repair somebody else's property. They've got skin in somebody else's game. Similarly, verse 27 Um, after him the Tekoites repaired another section it's interesting it's another section because they've been mentioned earlier in the chapter they've done a bit over here and it's like we've done this well we've got a name in the book now guys let's go knock off early go to the pub have a beer no there's another bit over there that needs doing as well let's do that let's do everything that needs doing let's work until our fingers are bleeding not just until we've shown up and got our name in the list wherever you need us we'll be there The most most striking example, actually, is right at the beginning. This this blew my mind when I realised what's going on here. Look at verse 2. Look at this. Next to him, so this is next to Eliashib, the priest, the men of Jericho built. Now, we read that and you just skipped over it, right? And you thought, oh, I can find men of Jericho. That is mind-blowing. When you realise what those men did. Jericho is located about 17 miles from Jerusalem. It's a long way away. It's a long day's walk. Especially because Jericho is about 800 feet below sea level and Jerusalem is about 2,200 feet above sea level. So Jericho is, if you look at it on Google Earth, basically it's like this bright splodge of green in an ocean of brown. <laughs> like the, the, the whole of that part of Israel is semi-arid. But Jer- Jericho has this spring which pours out like two or three cubic metres of water a second or something. It's an absolutely huge amount of water. And it's, it may be one of the oldest inhabited, continuously inhabited areas on the surface of the earth. It is a beautiful, beautiful place. Even today it is an oasis. It is a luxury resort. Um, and it is exactly the sort of place that you would stay put in if you heard that people a day's march up that hill need help. It's like Yeah, guys, sort it out yourselves. 17 miles, 3,000 foot climb. But that's not all. See, the road from Jericho to Jerusalem was no ordinary road. You know about the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. You all know about the Jericho road. Quote, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And what happened next? And he fell into the hands of robbers. Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. Everybody knows about the Jericho Road. It's a barren, dusty, rocky, lonely, winding, isolated dirt track. A man who goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho is going to fall into the hands of robbers. Nobody's surprised by that bit in Jesus' parable because everybody knows that that's the badlands. So here we are in our little oasis of beautifulness our resort town, right? Our beautiful little kind of marble villa and like ocean view and all this kind of malarkey, down by the Dead Sea. And there was all those people up in trouble a days march away through the badlands. Get the tools, boys. Let's get to work. Because they understood sacrifice. They understood that what life is about is not what can I get, it's what can I give? It's better to give than to receive. See, as somebody once said. Tragically, not everybody's driven by the same conviction. If you, um, if you look in Nehemiah chapter eleven, no need to turn there, but at the end of the chapter, there's this long list of villages outside Jerusalem, and. Um, When you just read chapter 11 on its own, it's not obvious why that long list of villages should be included there. But when you read it in the light of chapter 3, you realise one of the reasons is because most of those names are conspicuous by their absence. All these villages whose inhabitants were not represented among those who laid down their comforts and laid down their callings and laid down their lives to go and build. The civilization at the top of the hill, so the Lord could return to His people. Because life is about sacrifice. It's interesting. There's a number of contemporary issues that I was chewing over. I want to make some brief comments on, and maybe this will open up questions um, uh, in the next pastoral panel. Let me talk. Let me just talk about one issue, um, and it's it's related tangentially to this issue of. Um, sacrificing your own self-interest. It's the issue of masculinity. It seems like it's... What's that got to do with anything? Well, let me, let me tell you. In, in the last few years among uh, Reformed folks, there's been a renewed interest in articulating the goodness of masculinity. We've got books entitled It's Good to Be a Man, and so on and so forth. And um, uh, There's a lot of um, social media chatter, I understand, about what real men are and what real men do. And I think it's understandable. I mean, we're living in an age where um, manhood has been destabilised by several generations of feminism and then kind of critical social justice ideology and um, and the the way of thinking about the world, which means that anybody in a position of power or privilege is automatically to be regarded as less morally worthy than others. And so, so men who have in many uh, spheres of life, rightly or wrongly, in many cases rightly, found themselves in positions of leadership, are increasingly looked down upon. And so men, men who just want to be godly men, kind of, they're, they're, they're clutching around for people to show them what to do. And there's all these books about masculinity. And uh, I'm afraid there are just some very childish ideas in many of those books about what being a man involves. I mean, you, the, like one of the, uh, Pastor Booth said earlier, everybody's trying to sell you something, right? So you go on Facebook or whatever else it is, and you can sign up for a $1,000 weekend course, man, for somebody to basically shout at you and make you run through the mud for 48 hours. I mean, to you know, make you like into a real man. It's just like, it's so pathetic. One of my friends, um, Jerry Boyer, made a comment recently um, his, his father uh, was a Christian man, hardworking blue-collar guy for his whole life. Worked very, very hard to provide for his family for his whole life. And Jerry never once heard him talk about masculinity. He just did it. He was ready to sacrifice. You see, because what masculinity actually is, is... Male Christ likeness. So, so here's an here's an example. Like, ha, how should a man relate to his wife? And I'm just I, honestly, I'm sick to death of all this pathetic, insecure posturing from men about um, being the boss around the house. It's like it's so childish. Obviously a godly woman is called to submit to her husband. right? It says so in the Bible. But What is the man called to do and talk about and focus his attention on and aspire to do and make his ambition and make the content of his prayers? What does the man do? Well, Ephesians 5, let's just read it, just to remind ourselves of what it actually says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The the verb is paradidomi for you Greek scholars. It's the word used in Romans 4.25 to describe giving up your life unto death. It's a technical term, meaning to, to lay down your life voluntarily so that you're dead now. That's how you're to live. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, That she might be holy and without blemish. That's what Christ does for the church. Purifies and loves and nurtures and cherishes and seeks the good and the sanctification and the holiness and the joy of the church. And in the same way, quote, husbands should love their wives. Like, guys, you, you will have plenty of opportunity to be a man at two in the morning when kid number two starts screaming and wakes up kid number one and kid number three. Like you have plenty of opportunity. You do not need to pay $1,000 for somebody to shout at you and make you run through the mud. But what you do need to do, what you do need to do is to pray and strive for the mindset that is absolutely, resolutely committed to a life of working hard and a life of fighting against sin. By like how dare you seek to exercise Dominion in the home, if you can't take dominion over the sins and temptations of the devil, who do you think you are really? The Pastor uh, Hadding said earlier, that, and, and this is, I, I come across the same data in another context, so I'm pretty sure this is right, but in psychological terms, the, the experience of um, uh, resisting a temptation, whether it's to smoke if you're trying to give it smoking, or to drink if you're trying to give it drinking, or to sin if you're trying to give a particular sin, right, is about as intense as feeling a little bit hungry. Right? And yet we, our churches are filled, filled with men who can't stop looking at porn, can't stop. Eh, really? So working hard and being ready to sacrifice and fighting against sin and being the, being the kind of godly, humble, gracious, secure-in-your-masculinity man that a godly woman would want to marry and raising children and worshipping God and then just die okay? <laughs> when you're done with it all. That's what men do. That's what Jesus, well, not the raising children thing, but that's what Jesus gave his life for his bride. And it's just glitteringly clear, isn't it, in Nehemiah three, as in so many other parts of Scripture. Here we've got a picture of Christ sacrificing his self-interest. Finally, uh, these men and women sacrificed their status. Again, look at look at the details. Look at who's working. The high priest, you know, um, clergy don't get a terribly good rap in the Bible. <laughs> Right? And with some justification, but Eliashib, hats off. Kudos. High priest, first on the list to start the work. Good for him. There are repeated references to rulers, verse 9, verse 12, verse 14, verse 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. You notice all them? All the rulers? All the leaders of the community who set an example? You want men to follow you, gentlemen? Well, you've got to go in the direction you want them to go. They sacrifice their status. Verse 12, ladies, look. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Like, he's a serious... like He's basically the city councillor for half the town. And his daughters. It's like, yeah, but when I grow up, I want to be a princess. Well, they, these guys already are princesses. It's like, well, I guess it's some work needs doing. Um... My favourite princess, she's dead now, actually, um, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, the late Queen Elizabeth, late Queen of England. Remarkable Christian lady, maintained a godly Christian witness in a subdued way, but throughout a fairly turbulent 20th century, let's face it. Um, One less known fact about um, Her Late Majesty, um, she is probably the most photographed person who's ever lived. Um, she has she had an official photo on on average every day of her reign for the best part of seven decades, and you know most of the photos she got a little hat and she got a little she got little gloves because and she wore gloves all the time because otherwise she'd constantly be getting ill from all the people's hands she had to shake and the diseases and stuff. You know my favourite photograph of Queen Elizabeth II. I might have shared some of this with some of you before, but um, um, she's not wearing white gloves and the pretty hat. In fact, she wasn't even queen. It was taken in 1945 when the young Princess Elizabeth, who was um, at that time in that calling known as Second Subaltern Elizabeth Windsor, is photographed removing, you know, she's on her hands and knees in these grimy overalls, removing a wheel from a truck. Because during the Second World War, she enlisted in the military. She couldn't go to fight, obviously. But she nonetheless got her hands dirty. Little Princess Lizzie no. Like these women here. You know, people sometimes criticize the late Queen for not, you know, being Calvinist or something. And like I'm Calvinist, I'm more Calvinist than any of you, I guarantee. But, <laughs> but but like where 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 godliness is put to the test, like nobody would have criticised her in nineteen forty five if she'd just stayed with her pretty white gloves. But she's willing to get her hands dirty to do her part, to sacrifice her status for the sake of her people? Or do you want to be remembered like those men in verse 5? Next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. You know, on the last day, the Day of Judgment is a day of unveiling. The Day of Judgment is not the day when Jesus and God the Father and the Spirit of God decide what to do with us all. is the day on which they unveil the truth about all of us. And there will be some on that day about whom God the Father says, yeah, uh, you would not stoop to serve. Whereas Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was going back to God and rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist and he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him because that's what needed to be done because the kingdom of God is built on sacrifice. So will you frame everything, all of your ambitions, all of your vocations, all of your aspirations within that overall picture of laying down your life, sacrificing for the sake of others. Because if you will, then you'll be following that Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus, who not only spoke, but did deeds of sacrifice. Teach us, we pray, to be like him and to frame all of our ambitions all of our deeds within that picture where we self-consciously are seeking to find ways to lay down our lives for the sake of others. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.